I wish to ask that you will join me now in seeking the Lord together as we have the word of prayer. So if you can, please kneel with me. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you that you love us that much, not only to create us, but you you created a day uh, that comes every week to look at your creation, to spend time with us that we may grow in grace, that we may rest from our labors, and not just our physical labors, Lord. Uh, that's really kind of minor. Uh, but our spiritual labors, our battles with sin, our battles with uh, the devil. And uh, we can gain encouragement together as we gain a taste of heaven and get a taste of heaven. The Holy Spirit is, is in this place with each one of us and with your saints all around the world. Father, we thank you so much, not only for the Sabbath day, you are the heart of the Sabbath. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who sacrificed all heaven so that we may have eternal life, that we may be saved from death. And from the bottom of our hearts, we give our whole heart to you and our our thanks and our praise. And Father, we ask forgiveness as we claim the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary for our sins. And we have hope, because He was resurrected, that we too will see our lost loved ones again. And we have hope, in this generation, that we may see Jesus come without seeing that. We pray for the Holy Spirit to aid us in that preparation, Lord, and preparing others to see Jesus, for we know, we see the signs that His coming is very near. Father, we pray for those on our prayer list. We pray for our youth, our children. They're living in a world of wickedness. Father, I shake my head and I, I see things all around me and it's it's like the whole world's been turned upside down where evil is good and and good is evil spoken of. And I pray for courage for each and every one of us who claims the name of Christian. I pray that you will protect your people as you've promised from the beast and help us, Lord, to reach a lost world before it's too late. I ask humbly, Lord, as I speak upon these topics today, beast and the end time events that you give me the words to speak that they will reach hearts they will come to see Jesus in these things and and uh, your law and and uh, repent and give themselves wholeheartedly to you please Lord send angels that excel in strength to be with each one of us surround us that we may truly gain that rest that you've promised and preparation for Christ's soon return I thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I've entitled this message, The Landmark of Liberty. And I've spoken about this subject before during the you know, this time of year, as it is really, to me, it's a tremendous reminder of what the United States of America was all about at its very foundation and uh, where it has been headed, really, since that time. 
And I hope that you will, friends, that you will prayerfully listen to my words and that you will heed the counsel as we are so very near what God has warned us of since the three angels' messages were first given there in that summer of 1844. I want to begin, really, by saying that I am deeply grateful to God, and I am, to be a citizen of these United States of America at this time in history. You see, I think it's a privilege for me to be an American at a time that is so close to the second coming of Jesus. And if we remain faithful, friends, we're going to be a part of the loud cry that finishes the work, and the greatest battleground of that work is right here in this country. Yes, we're to take the whole message to the whole world, but this is the heart, friends, of that great work. As a native citizen of these United States, I was raised to love Independence Day, the celebration of independence for so many reasons. The summer days when the corn is knee high that we live in, in a, you know. They, they say there's a commercial that says there's more than corn in Indiana, but let me tell you there's a lot of corn in Indiana. <laughs> and I grew up and the saying was, before you had all the GMOs and the different things with the different seeds and such, that if the corn was knee-high by the 4th of July, it was in good shape. Had a good start. Beautiful summer days, beautiful white clouds in the blue sky, the flags of our nation proudly waving in the breeze, singing songs to God and country, apple pies cooling on windowsills, families picnicking together, and the fireworks that are so beautiful. All in celebration, friends, of liberty and freedom. Well, maybe not so much today. I saw a little video. They were doing one of those man-on-the-street videos, and they were asking young people why they celebrate the 4th of July, and the majority of them said, because it's a party and they want to get drunk. That was just so very sad and disheartening to me. Friends, this day, this Independence Day, more than any other, reminds me, I think in a small way, of that day when we will be eternally independent of sin and the originator of it. We will be so happy and glad and rejoice together. All will be a celebration of joy on that great day, friends. And let me say, I love such American traditions that stand on biblical principles. You know, tradition isn't bad unless it goes against the Word of God. But I love the traditions that stand on biblical principles, liberty, freedom. And they will remain only if we remember the landmark of this liberty that we have. And it's been forgotten. I want to speak about this landmark of liberty again with you as we are in a time of great change in this country that was founded on freedom, liberty of conscience. And this change was predicted. It surely was. It was predicted. And friends, though it was predicted in Bible prophecy, it doesn't mean that, that we are to love this change. We are to love God 
We're to love Jesus. We're to love His character traits. We're to hate sin. We're to hate unrighteousness, wherever it may be found. This is the bigger picture of the gospel and the controversy that we're, we are in between good and evil. But as citizens, we're privileged to be a part of this great nation and exercise the freedom that it has offered to millions. And still to this point, although it's getting worse, we have the right to disagree. (laughs) We have the right to speak our mind whether others listen or not. We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of the press and the right to petition our government for grievances. We have the freedom to hope and dream and pursue those dreams. And in this country we are free in so many different ways. We have these freedoms because of what our forefathers have done in following God's will to establish this country upon righteous principles which have at their foundation, friends, liberty of conscience. A gift from the Creator, I will tell you, and not a gift from man. when our colonial forefathers broke their political ties with England because of tyranny, they turned to the only true source of freedom, which is God, who created man to be free. Listen to the words from our Declaration of Independence. This is from July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They don't have to be proven, they're self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these rights, means these aren't the only ones, among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights not given by governments, but to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. You know, on Thursday, 4th of July, my family, well, my wife and daughter and, uh, and friend Mike went down to Indianapolis and we had a day in the museums and walking around downtown looking at memorials and, and just soaking it in. And while we were at uh, the uh, Monument Circle there, right downtown Indianapolis, a number of people there, and there was a rally. It was, it was, to me, it was refreshing to see. There was a rally of young people that were protesting the intrusion of government, protesting the intrusion of rights. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I am so encouraged to see that this rally is made up of young people. And they came and they were rallying. And what they did, they, 
they had a big speaker and they were reading the Bill of Rights to the public. <laughs> it took me back to this time. They understood the foundation of this country. They see it being attacked. It's been attacked for a long time. We'll get to that in a few moments. But here we have these founders and, and principles. They recognize that we were all created by God and that there are unalienable rights that are given to us from God. And that governments are formed, there's organization formed, not to give rights, but to protect them. And as John Adams signed the Declaration of Independence, he said, whether we live or die, sink or swim, succeed or fail, I stand behind this Declaration of Independence. And if God wills it, John Adams says, I'm ready to die in order that this country might experience freedom. Friends, it was that kind of patriotism, that kind of belief in liberty, in freedom, which led men, armed basically with a little more than hunting rifles, to engage in battle with what, with what was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Many of our forefathers paid a terrible price in the Revolutionary War. Of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, do you know that nine died of wounds or hardship during the war? Five were captured and imprisoned and were treated brutally. Several lost their wives, their sons. Many lost their entire families. One lost all of his 13 children. 13 children. All were at one time or another the victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned to the ground. Seventeen lost everything they owned. Yet not one not one defected or went back on their pledged word. You see, it was principle. It was principle, not property, that had brought these men to Philadelphia. Two of them became presidents of the United States. Seven of them became state governors. One died in office as vice president. Several would go on to be U.S. senators. Which was regarded very well at that time, not so much today. One founded the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1828. One was a delegate, and he was a delegate from Philadelphia, was the only real poet. He was a musician. He was a philosopher. He was the only one of the signers. And it was him, his name was Francis Hopkinson, not Betsy Ross, who designed the United States flag. Friends, the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence proved by their every deed that they made no idle boast when they lined up to sign their names into history. William Ellery, he was a delegate from Rhode Island. He was curious to see the signers' faces as they committed this supreme act of personal courage. He saw some men sign quickly, but he said, but in no face was he able to discern real fear. 
Stephen Hopkins, Ellery's colleague from Rhode Island, was a man past 60, and in those days that was very aged. And as he signed that declaration with a shaking pen, he said, My hand trembles, but my heart does not. And for the support of this declaration with the firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Let me ask you, would the protection of divine providence include those who pledged to destroy freedom of conscience or those who were pledged to defend it? What do you think? And what is this sacred honor that's spoken of? Our sacred honor. Well, Webster's 1828 dictionary defines sacred as this. Holy, pertaining to God or to His worship, separated from common secular uses and consecrated to God and His service as a sacred place, a sacred day, a sacred feast, sacred service, sacred orders, a sacred honor. The same dictionary defines honor as this. The esteem due or paid to worth. High estimation. A testimony of esteem. Any expression of respect or of high estimation by words or actions. As the honors of war, military honors, funeral honors, civil honors. As you look around today and you see the signs that Jesus spoke of, friends, I ask, where is that same sacred honor to be found today? If one would just read the Declaration of Independence as well as the, the U.S. Constitution, they would see that they are filled with biblical principles because the founding fathers of this country were godly men for the most part. And in the Declaration of Independence, they were saying that the people who are politically sovereign institute civil governments, but God, who is the only true sovereign, establishes the institution of civil government. You see, it's God that's the ruler of all. You remember what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar? In Daniel 2... Verse 20, Daniel answering Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. It's been my experience that there are few today who really understand what independence really means. At least as our founding fathers understood it to mean. You see, to the founders, a person who is independent is free and self-responsible only under God. To them it meant that he or she is self-governing, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and self-supporting under God. 
An independent person is free from the influence and control of other men. And if we understand the real meaning of the word independence, I think we can see that we have a serious problem in our country today. That is, we see that we are not very free and self-responsible because the large majority of Americans are very much dependent for their economic existence, for example, on various levels of civil government, mostly from the federal government. And with this economic dependence has come a corresponding loss of individual freedom and self-responsibility before God. You see, my friends, true freedom is not simply the license to do anything that a person might desire without any consideration for the consequences. No, friends, true independence, true freedom entails man's duty to be fully responsible to God for every thought, word, and action. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 11 and 12, he said, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. As I mentioned earlier, I run into people, they don't believe in God. But it's just a matter of time, friends. It's just a matter of time. If they don't believe in God now and give themselves to Him, they will believe in Him when they see Him face to face and have to give an account themselves. And every knee will bow. And something I can't stress enough, one thing we always want to keep in mind about freedom and liberty is this, civil rulers are never the source of true freedom. If civil rulers perform their God-appointed duty, they will protect our God-given freedom. But civil government cannot bestow freedom. God is the source of freedom. And Jesus showed this difference when He said in Mark 12, verse 17, He said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We follow God's will above the will of men because God is the source of life and freedom. And as Peter said in Acts 5, 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. We are to, to follow God's laws above all others. My friends, it's when man makes laws that conflict with the laws of God that we can lose true freedom. For wicked men always look to enslave their brethren. And that's the spirit of Antichrist. The lessons of history show through some 6,000 years of, of our existence that civil rulers, more often than not, have imposed tyranny on the very citizens whose freedom... God entrusted those civil rulers to protect. And this is not the Spirit of God, friends. This is of the devil. It was the Protestant pilgrims who left the shores of Europe in search of a place where they could worship God according to the dictates of their conscience and in peace, free from persecution, free from tyranny that landed on the eastern shores of America. And the framers of this country held that same love of freedom as a sacred honor and understood the history of such tyranny. 
This is attested to by the, the words expressed in the very first amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And this is what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Very first words. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And in case you didn't know, I will tell you there are many today who frown upon the founders of this great nation and these words expressing the right of individuals to be at liberty, to worship, to speak, to assemble, to formally complain of the government when they go beyond their authority. To many today, and I'll say too many, these words establishing the rights of the people are too restrictive upon the power of the government. You see, these godless ones have a different definition of freedom, and it's usually whatever they declare it to be. Lucifer had the same argument in heaven when he said that the angels were not truly free under the law of God. And we see the fruits of that argument every day as sin is destroying the lives of millions all over the globe. Do we not? George, George Santayana, a notable philosopher, he coined the phrase, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And those who are students of the Bible can attest to the accuracy of these words, not only from the pages concerning the actions of Israel of old, but also understanding the events of the future as spelled out in the prophecies of Revelation. In particular, chapters 13 through 18. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I'm going to share something with you from the book Maranatha, page 30. Many of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled in quick succession. Every element of power is about to be set to work. Past history will be repeated. Old controversies will arouse to new life and peril will beset God's people on every side. Intensity is taking hold of the human family. It is permeating everything upon the earth. Study Revelation in connection with Daniel for history will be repeated. Friends, we're seeing the fulfillment of these prophecies in our, in our day. And it's happening just as the prophet said, fulfilled in quick succession. Revelation is a marvelous testimony of Jesus who was given to His people. It's a heads up. Revelation 13 speaks about two different beasts. But the one I want to touch on at this time, friends, is the second one. Because it describes... and is speaking to both the history and the future of this country, the United States of America. Now, a beast in biblical prophecy is a symbol for a kingdom, a government, or a political power. We find this in 
different places throughout the Bible, but I'll share two with you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 17 says, These great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. And verse 23, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So we see here that beasts are a symbol of a kingdom, a government, a, a political power. And knowing this key to prophecy, it opens up prophecy to us. Let's take a closer look at what it says in Revelation 13. In particular, verse 11. We'll begin there. And I'm going to go line upon line, friends. Verse 11. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast. That's in Revelation 13, first ten verses, that first beast. So this second beast, he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth, not just a country, the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, According to previous Bible prophecies, the first beast is symbolic of papal Rome. It's a church-state amalgam. And it received what appeared to be a deadly wound in the year 1798 when France took the Pope captive and he died in exile. This second beast that comes up out of the earth must arise then sometime after the wounding or the captivity of the papacy. So sometime after 1798. Because verse 12 says, whose deadly wound was healed. Now in locating what power arose at that time, let's notice the following points in this prophecy. First, the prophet beheld another beast with two horns like a lamb coming up, meaning to rise or spring up like a plant out of the earth. Now a lamb, we know, is not a full-grown animal, is it? So this kingdom, this government, this political power would be coming up and not be full grown in 1798 when the papacy went into captivity. Second thing, while the first beast of Revelation 13.1 came up from the sea, which in prophecy, according to Revelation 17.15, means peoples, uh, nations, tongues, and multitudes, this second beast comes up out of the earth, it says. And that indicates that while the former kingdom arose in land populated with peoples and multitudes, this latter kingdom, this latter government or political power, was to rise in new territory, not formerly occupied as a kingdom, government, or political power. Third thing, the first beast of Revelation 13 had a crown. And I'll leave it to you to read the first ten verses of chapter 13. But the first beast had a crown. The Pope is the ruler of his church and state. But this second beast had none. Didn't have a crown, which would indicate that it didn't have a kingly ruler. The fourth thing, it would exercise its power before or in the presence of the papal beast, showing that it's not a, a Catholic kingdom government political power. It's not counted as a part of the papal confederacy. Quite the contrary. A fifth thing. This beast would be a great kingdom, government, political power, for it was equal in power to the first beast. And a sixth thing. 
its principles were to be lamb-like. The Bible describes Jesus Christ as a lamb of God, doesn't it? So the principles of this, uh, uh, this kingdom, this government, this political power was to be Christ-like. Now Christ advocated two great principles, friends. You go through the gospel. First was a separation of church and state. He said in Luke 20, verse 25, and we've read this before, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, that's the state, and unto God the things which are be God's, that's the church. That is, keep the two separate. Not, you're not going to have an established state church. See? Second, second principle, great principle, religious liberty. Jesus said in John 12, 47, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. He has the freedom to decide. In Matthew 7, 1, he said, Judge not that ye be not judged. And so we consider these. In looking at that second beast of Revelation 13, there are only two contenders that could possibly fit the criteria for this beast. And that would be the United States of America or Australia. You see, both arose in the late 18th century. The United States in 1776, Australia in 1788. Both were founded in regions of the world that were sparsely populated. Both were youthful nations. But here's where Australia falls short, friends. While the United States commenced as a haven for persecuted Christians from Europe, Australia did not arise as a mild nation with lamb-like principles. It was founded as a harsh penal colony. Now, friends, history testifies that from the start the United States was characterized by its unique separation of church and state and allowing freedom of religion to all people. A land of religious liberty. With no pope. No kingly ruler. Notice this from the book, The Great Controversy, page 441. The Christian exiles who first fled to America sought an asylum from royal oppression and priestly intolerance, and they determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil and religious liberty. The Declaration of Independence sets forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws. Freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Notice this. She says, Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. Friends, the United States of America sprung forth with a gentleness and innocence based on republicanism and protestantism. Now, I'm not talking about party affiliates. You know, something that we've been hearing more and more of in the last several years is how, 
how great democracy is and that the United States is founded upon it. That's not so, friends. That's not so. This once great nation was founded as a representative republic. A republic is a representative government ruled by law, the Constitution. A democracy is a direct government ruled by the majority, mob rule. And there are no guaranteed rights for the minority. A republic recognizes the inalienable rights of individuals while democracies are only concerned with group wants or group needs. The majority decides the public good. And friends, I cringe, I cringe when I hear our representatives talk about what a great democracy we have in the United States as if that was what we were founded upon. We may be a democracy now, but we weren't at the beginning. The United States began as a republic. And that's what she means by republicanism. The United States didn't begin as a democracy. But you know the prophecy foretells that this once lamb-like nation shall eventually change and speak as a dragon. And my friends, this change has already begun, just in case you've been asleep. Let's go back to Revelation, verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 13. Talking about this second beast, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Notice he's speaking to the earth, not just the country. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause. That is, legislate. You come up and you bring up laws and you enforce them. Speak and cause that as many as would not worship, it's a law that has to do with worship, friends. Worship the image of the beast, should be killed. It will have a death penalty with it. And he causeth all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And so, friends, we see that our country, the United States of America, which was founded by men who held liberty as a sacred honor, will not learn from history the history of the first beast, the history of papal Rome specifically. And so they're doomed to repeat it by making an image of it, combining the church and the state and enforcing worship on pain of death. They will enforce religious dogmas upon the people that go against the very laws of God. This country will eventually enforce worship just as papal Rome has before. But how can we forget the principles of liberty that so many fought and died for? Well, that didn't happen overnight. You see, our taste buds have become perverted. How is that, you say? 
our taste buds have become perverted. But you to notice what it says in Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Our taste buds have become perverted by eating dainty meats. The evil practice that civil rulers have long engaged in to enslave the very people whose freedom God raised them to protect. They offer the people dainty meats or, let's look at it this way, government bestowed favors like bailouts and business subsidies and welfare payments. Anything to make the people dependent on the civil rulers instead of God which then empowers the political rulers to manipulate and control the population. And who has really been behind these dainty offerings? The father of lies and his representative on earth. The first beast or, well, the Roman Catholic Church. And friends, I don't say this lightly or without support of history or without support of scriptures we must look at the evidence and come to a right conclusion. Dr. E. Boyd Barrett, who was for many years in the Jesuit order, he wrote in 1935 a remarkably frank account of the work of the Catholic Action, which was established in the 20th century to help Rome infiltrate and, and uh, uh, dramatically influence the United States educational systems, the libraries, the courts, the banks, the civil governing bodies. And he left no doubt concerning their aims in America. I want to read to you some excerpts from his book entitled Rome Stoops to Conquer. Notice this from page 15. He says, in theory, Catholic action is the work and service of lay Catholics in the cause of religion under the guidance of the bishops. In practice, it is the Catholic group fighting their way to control America. On page 266, he says, The effort, the fight, may be drawn out. It may last for five or ten years. Even if it lasts for twenty, what is twenty years in the life of Rome? The fight must be fought to a finish. Opposition must be worn down if it cannot be swept away. Rome's immortal destiny hangs on the outcome. That destiny overshadows the land. And on page 267 he says, And in the fight, as she has ever fought, when battles were most desperate in the past, Rome will use steel and gold and silvery, silvery lies. Rome will stoop to conquer. And so this Catholic action, they were raised in order to control, gain control of this Protestant-founded nation. Another historical writer, his name was Josiah Strong, he speaks thus of the attitude of the papal hierarchy as regards the freedom of conscience. And what was it that was founded upon? Freedom of conscience, republicanism, right? And liberty, freedom of conscience. And he speaks of this, the attitude of, of uh, uh, Rome towards freedom of conscience and the perils which especially threaten our country, the United States. And this is from his book, 
our country. Pages 47 to 48. He says, There are many who are disposed to attribute any fear of Roman Catholicism in the United States to bigotry or childishness. Such see nothing in the character and attitude of Romanism that is hostile to our free institutions or find nothing portentous in its growth. Let us then first compare some of the fundamental principles of our government with those of the Catholic Church. The Constitution of the United States guarantees liberty of conscience. Nothing is dearer or more fundamental. Pope Pius IX in his encyclical letter of August 15, 1854 said, quote, The absurd and erroneous doctrines or ravings in defense of liberty of conscience are a most pestilential error a pest of all others most to be dreaded in a state. End quote. The same Pope, in his encyclical letter of December 8, 1864, ten years later, anathematized, quote, those who assert the liberty of conscience and of religious worship, also all such as maintain that the church may not employ force. He anathematized that. Strong goes on and says, the pacific tone of Rome in the United States does not imply a change of heart. She is tolerant where she is helpless. Did you catch that? Rome is tolerant where she is helpless. He says Bishop O'Connor states, quote, Religious liberty is merely endured until the opposite can be carried into effect without peril to the Catholic world. End quote. He says the Archbishop of St. Louis once said, quote, Heresy and unbelief are crimes, and in Christian countries, as in Italy and Spain, for instance, where all the people are Catholics and where the Catholic religion is an essential part of the law of the land, they are punished as other crimes, end quote. In the same strain, Strong says, the Boston Pilot, quote, No good government can exist without religion, and there can be no religion without an inquisition which is wisely designed for the promotion and protection of the true faith, end quote. Friends, I, I suggest that you find a copy of this book by Josiah Strong before it disappears, along with the record of these statements. I did happen to find a copy. Friends, Papal Rome wishes to enslave us all to her dogmas and decrees. They are preparing the world to receive their mark. But we want the mark of liberty, not enslavement. Enslavement is the opposite of independence. God does not enslave us. He created us with freedom to choose, liberty of conscience. Let's take the counsel of the psalmist. In one, Psalms 141 verse 4, he says, Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. The basis of freedom is spiritual, friends. You see, for it originates from God who is spiritual. People are being enslaved because they have forgotten the landmark of liberty. They have forgotten God, or they've never known Him. The framers of our country were careful. They were careful to guard against our ever forgetting this landmark by placing it right there in plain view in the Declaration of Independence. Remember when I read earlier? 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Did you know that in ancient times, boundary stones or landmarks marked a person's property. Anyone who moved such a stone was in effect stealing land. Boundaries in Israel were sacred because God owned the land and He apportioned the property to the different tribes as an inheritance. To extend one's property illegally was a violation of covenant and oath. Or to pull back a boundary previously held was to renege on your commitment to God's promise. The boundaries that were established by their forefathers were to be preserved, you see. Deuteronomy 27 verse 17 says, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. Cursed. You remove the landmark, you're cursed. God is the source of our freedom. When He's removed, we're cursed. See, beloved, it's God that is the source of our independence. His character is the landmark of our liberty. We were originally created in His image with this landmark. Genesis 1 verse 26 And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Man is precious as a result of being created in the very image and likeness of God. Therefore, man has an inherent right to be free and the source of this liberty is not the United States government or any other. The source of this liberty is God. Genesis 2, verse verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He had a work to do. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die, is what the original says. Friends, this tells us that true liberty is conditional upon faithful obedience to God's commands. (laughs) True liberty is conditional upon faithful obedience to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He also said in Romans 7.14, For we know that the law 
is spiritual. And Jesus said in John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I put before you, beloved, only those who hold to the landmark of liberty, God's Spirit, His character, truly experience freedom, for they live within the bounds of God's law, exhibiting His character. They do not break God's law and thus lose their liberty and freedom. And this is the definition of freedom, a free people. This is the definition Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's the definition of liberty. You see, commandment breakers look in vain to man for freedom. And what they receive instead is bondage and enslavement and sin. I don't understand it, friends. Why is it that so many citizens today... Gladly give up individual liberty for security, so-called. Well, see, I think at the foundation, they've forgotten the landmark of liberty. They've forgotten the Creator God. Beloved, I contend that it is not the secularists or atheists that are forgetting the source of liberty. They've never known it personally, really. The source of our liberty is being forgotten and driven from our land by supposed Protestant Christians who have given up their duty to stand and protest against Romish principles that enslave us. They're content with building an image to Rome instead, just as predicted. They teach that the law of God has been done away with. And so the lamb-like nation that was formed on republicanism and Protestantism is speaking as a dragon more and more for they share His Antichrist spirit. Page 563 of the book, The Great Controversy. The time was when Protestants placed a high value upon the liberty of conscience, which had been so dearly purchased. They taught their children to abhor popery and held that to seek harmony with Rome would be disloyalty to God. What? What did they teach their children? Can you teach your children that today? They taught their children to abhor popery and held that to seek harmony with Rome, that's papal Rome, would be disloyalty to God? But how widely different are the sentiments now expressed? Oh. It's amazing to see how Protestants have forgotten the landmark of liberty. While professing God, their actions show that they do not remember Him. The Bible tells us in Acts 5.32 that the Holy Ghost is given by God to them that obey Him. And so when we forget the landmark of our freedom that we lose it, 
beloved, our country is forgetting the source of her providence and freedoms because Christians are not standing for truth and principle. They do not have the Spirit of God, but a different spirit. They are refusing the landmark that God has provided, His law, which is a transcript of His character. No, they're changing the boundaries. They're moving the landmark. They're changing God's law. And they're going to enforce others to accept it on fear of death. God said, cursed is he who removes the landmark. So beloved, as we take the time to celebrate Independence Day, I call upon you don't forget the landmark of liberty as others do. Let us not be as unbelievers and those who sleep on their watch. Let us remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Let us stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Let us consider the principles established by the fathers of this nation under the influence of God. And let us teach our children about the landmark of liberty and our words will mirror the psalmists. I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. So speak ye and so do as they shall be judged by the law of liberty. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, and You are our Father, we humbly come before You, Lord, and we seek Your grace. Father, forgive us, for we haven't stood upon right principles. We haven't taught our children right ways. Father, help us. Help us to be like the rock. To stand on truth no matter what others may think or do or say. I pray, Lord, that we would teach our children your ways and not the world's ways. that we will hold to the landmark, that we will not move the landmark. May we be a tool in your hand to save those from the fire. May we walk free as free men, for you created us to be free and hold up your law, your character. Keep us to that end, Lord. May we be found faithful to our trust. I pray in Jesus' name.